Good morning. It is awfully good to see you. I love that gospel text, but I'm preaching from the Old Testament, which I feel like I've said almost every week I've preached for the last few months. Keep being drawn to the Old Testament lectionary text. And um, it continues to be um, kind of amazing to me, the Holy Spirit's capacity as a DJ to give us just the right riff, the right song at the right time. You might almost think that the Spirit is somehow at work, somehow in this whole liturgy and lectionary thing. Jeremiah chapter 29 is where I'm going, and we're just going to look at a couple of verses together. Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, this very visceral book that is written to uh, people of God in exile, written to people of God who are now finding themselves in an unfamiliar place, an unfamiliar kind of space in history, um, in a place where they constantly feel displaced and disoriented. Jeremiah 29, beginning with verse 1, then we'll skip to verses 4 through 7. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare... You will find your welfare. Do you mind if I read that verse one more time? Because I think this is so significant for us right now. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Would you pray with me one more time for just a moment? Lord, I do just ask you now that you would grant us the grace to sit under the authority of your word and to be instructed, to be comforted, to be challenged, to be provoked. Some of us come into this place needing different ones of those things. Realistically, I think probably we all need a little bit of all of it. We need some comfort that you are with us. We need some comfort that you are sovereign. And yet, Lord, there are, um, there are still some things that you need to dislodge. There are still some things that you need to tear down. There are still some things that you need to rearrange inside of us. And we want to be open to all of that. We welcome you, Spirit. We ask that you would speak now to your people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, um, in my life, I haven't had a lot of history with kids, but now that I have some kids that are increasingly significant in my life, just hanging out with 
Pepper the other day. She's seven. And while her mom was out of town, and this was a couple days ago, I keep up with the news, but I was not aware of this. I had not heard about the whole clown thing. Have you guys heard about the clown thing? Because, you know, life isn't enough of a dark circus right now anyway. Hello. And I'm like, really, killer clowns? The kids were talking about this, and apparently this really caught on at school. Because, like, apparently there have been a handful of people around the country dressing up in, like, demonic, sinister clown costumes. Some of them... uh, you know, doing a little bit of mischief. A few people have apparently been hurt, so I think more people just kind of being scared. But this turned into a whole thing at school, you know, that they're like, that they're clowns that live in the woods, and they live in all the woods and all the cities, and they murder children, and they're trying to lure them into the, like, you know, this is what was going around at school. So suffice it to say, you know, Pepper's, Pepper the other day was, was pretty concerned about this, so since I'm, you know, watching her, just this whole thing that happens over the course of an evening where, at every sound, everything that happens, she thinks it's a killer clown. You know, it's like there's a rustling in the trees or one of the dogs, you know, gets into something, whatever. Every little noise, just that, oh. And it was so, and of course I'm trying to, I didn't tell her the whole thing about the world is already a, just a dark, dark circus. <laughs> Pepper, there are demented clowns everywhere. This is the world that we live in. I'm as afraid as you are. I Wanted to say that I didn't say any of those things. <laughs> They're trying to comfort her, you know, kind of through all this. Oh, it's going to be fine. There are no clowns out to get you, et cetera. But it was so interesting to me to watch um, how quickly just these handful of rumors at school internalized by a seven-year-old, how all of a sudden then you're afraid of everything. Then you're just living in constant state of fear. The way that then that changes your senses and perception. You know, the every little noise, anything that, every little creak in the house, and something's out to get you. That sense of fear, that sense of paranoia, that sense of, of being ill at ease. And I do think while I experience it differently, that really is what the world feels like to me at times, and I think for many of us right now. Once the fear gets loose, and especially when you feel like that there was a time in your life, or when there was a time for us collectively as a people, where we felt like the world was pretty stable. We felt like we had a pretty good handle on what was going on. We had a pretty good sense of like things just feel relatively tethered down. We feel like we're safe. We feel like we're okay. And then when all of a sudden the world looks really unfamiliar and you really have this sense that you don't know where the story's going and you don't know what's going to happen, you don't know where any of it's headed, that sense of just feeling displaced and disoriented. I've come to feel very at home in Tulsa. I love being here. But you know about my first six months here? This is the first place I've ever lived outside of home, basically, from where I'm from. And how often I would wake up, sometimes in the middle of the night, and do this thing of, where am I getting? How did, how did I get here? Just this, this sense of disorientation. You know what I'm talking about? That, that sense of displacement. I feel like so many of us are coming to live that way kind of, kind of all the time right now, that constant sense of disorientation, that constant sense of, of displacement that just doesn't seem to go away. We're used to feeling like we're people who have inhabited the land. We're used to, and I'll say this as um, people who have any kind of a history with the church in America, we're used to a certain kind of influence and affluence. We're used to a certain kind of 
um, control when it comes to culture. We're used to being in charge of things. But Jeremiah writes to people in exile who are now having to get used to the fact that they're really not in charge of things, really not in charge of much of anything. Um, they're living in a world that's very different from their native land. Jeremiah has written to two different groups of exiles. There were some, after Babylon took over, after the people of God went to captivity, there were some that were able to sort of remain in their homeland under Babylonian jurisdiction, but there were others that were actually moved from Jerusalem to Babylon. And that's where this part of the letter is addressed. In the first part of Jeremiah, you have lots of warnings about what's to come. Babylon is going to come. They're going to take over. We're going to go into exile. But there's also like an opportunity to repent. And there's this hopefulness that maybe things are going to change in some way. So even as Jeremiah is giving these warnings, you know, that, that's a lot of what the first half of the book is. You know, Babylon is coming. This is what's going to happen. But the people of God are kind of given space to repent and all that. And all throughout the book of Jeremiah, we have this contrast, actually, because Jeremiah, being the prophet of the Lord, is the one who's constantly just dealing with the reality that, that the world is not okay. Things are not okay. But at the same time, there are these false prophets going around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. There are false prophets saying, everything's fine, when in reality, everything is not fine. But we desperately want to be told that we're fine. We desperately want to be told that everything's going to be okay. And especially when you have that sense that you've been in exile for a while, especially when you're, you're you don't feel in control and the world feels somehow outside of your grasp and you don't know what's going to happen. And so many different kinds of people have so many different reasons to be afraid. Surely somewhere, sometime soon, we get to go back home. Surely we're only going to feel this for so long. Surely we're going to be back in control. The day's going to come when we'll be in charge again. The time's going to come where we're going to rule and reign once again. And sometimes when the church in North America, we use this kind of language of taking America back for God. When are we going to take America back? When are things going to kind of come full circle? When are we going to go back to this place? Now, everything that Jeremiah wrote was unpopular. But I can't imagine there was anything that ever said much more unpopular than this. Because by the time we get to Jeremiah 29, the people of God have been in exile for some time. Jeremiah wrote a lot of things when he was younger. Now he's older. The people are older. And because things have been so bad for so long, they're living with this sense. Because, you know, they, they still have the promises of God, the God who delivered them out of Egypt, that the day's going to come, that God's going to restore Israel. They still have that promise. They still have that hope. And the worse things get, they're in this place where they know our salvation is just around the corner. Surely we are right there. Surely we're on the brink. Because things couldn't get any worse than they are right now. We've already the Babylonians have taken over our culture. Already they're beginning to, uh, to, to stamp out everything that was unique about us. They're trying to uh, take away our, our stories and our songs and our language and teach us a new language. It, surely things are about to get better. Surely God is about to change all of this. And it's into this context that Jeremiah says in verse 4, or yeah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, 
Take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Here's the translation of this. Hey, Israel, I know you thought that the big change was just around the corner because you thought things couldn't get any worse and that your deliverance is at hand, but I got news for you. You're going to be here for a while. So settle down. Go ahead and have some kids. Go ahead and have some grandkids. God's deliverance is still coming. God's salvation is still coming, but it's not going to come nearly as quickly as you thought or as you hoped. It may not come in the way that you had hoped. So you may, you may have a little bit more time here. This is not what people in exile want to hear. We want to hear just around the corner Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be better. And I think it's important, in fact, actually, that we do keep that kind of hope in front of us. But I'm just raising the real question. What if it, what if it doesn't get better anytime soon? What if it gets worse? <laughs> I have this moment in like every sermon I preach here now where I think like about the midway point. I'm like, dear God, this is the most depressing thing. And I always think, like, it's remarkable that you still come. Thank you that you still come. Thank you for coming. Because I understand why. <laughs> Who wants to come and hear such things? When you think that that's, what, what if it's going to get worse before it gets better? What if it doesn't? I mean, I think about, as a parallel to this, even in the New Testament, every single letter, you can just feel the crackling hope. Uh, during the time of the epistles, that the second coming of Jesus is nigh. It is right around the corner. And one of the things that we know from church history, when you study that, even you know, beyond the time of the New Testament for the next 100, 150 years, it takes a long time for the church to start to establish any kind of systems or structures or leadership or anything, because they're not planning on passing anything down to the next generation. There's such a sense of imminent expectation that Jesus is coming they're not planning on passing anything down to their grandkids. There's not a procedure for them how to fill an office if a pastor leaves a local community because they're not thinking that far ahead. They think it's just around the corner. And then having to come to that collective sense ultimately of, ooh, well, we still believe that Jesus is coming, but we may be here for a while. So in the meantime, we better set some things up. I grew up with that sense of um, of apocalyptic kind of expectation. The Lord was coming in any moment. Of course, I thought that was a terrifying thing. I was, I thought, <laughs> for me, saying the Lord is coming is about the same as saying the killer clowns were coming. That's how I heard that. <laughs> the Lord is coming. Ah, you know, the thing to be terrified about. But I did live with that kind of, that kind of expectation. And I I honestly do still believe that the Lord is coming. We profess that every week when we profess the creed, that we believe that, that Jesus, that God is raised from the dead, will come again for us. I believe that. I don't believe everything about it now than I did then, and this is not, today is not the day for a lecture about that, but, you know, 
I do believe that the ultimate fulfillment, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that God wants to establish his kingdom to rule and reign here. So the way, now I, I work that out differently than I used to, but I still do believe that the Lord is coming. I'm just saying, right, especially when things feel really wonky in the world around us and it feels upside down, of course the message that we want to hear is, I'll fly away. Y'all, did y'all grow up with songs like that? Like I loved I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, or the good old gospel ship. Anybody go sailing on that good old gospel ship? I'm going to take a trip on that good old gospel ship. Imperials sung that. Anybody know about the Imperials? Or Sandy Patty? Or Larno Harris? I don't even know. That doesn't have anything to do with anything, but it's like this is, you know, I, I love that idea of like the good old gospel ship. And it makes sense to me, right, that especially when things get really hard, that that's where our hearts and minds will go. I just want to be on the good old gospel ship. I will deal more at length with theology of the good old gospel ship later. But it makes sense to me how we want to fly away. It makes sense to me that we want to be snatched out. It makes sense to me all the reasons are like, because I just want to be with Jesus. I just want God to openly rule and reign. I want God to make things right. I want everything to be okay. And I will say again, I do think that we're supposed to live with that kind of expectation. And yet, there's a part of me when I'm reading a text like this from Jeremiah that kind of confronts me with this question. It's good to live with that hope, what Paul will call the blessed hope. It's good for us to remind ourselves on a regular basis that things don't end this way and that God does make things. We need to hear that. We need to know that the day comes when God will restore us to the loved ones that we've lost. And, you know, all of, we, we need to be reminded of those things. But what if Jesus doesn't come in six months? And what if instead of coming out of exile anytime soon, what if we go deeper in? What if we still have to raise kids and grandkids? What if the Lord doesn't come in the way that, he th- that we thought he was going to come or in the time in which he thought he was going to come? Then what are we going to do? Because there's no question about it. Living in the midst of exile is difficult and hard, partly because during the season of exile, where the imperial regime is stamping everybody, and I think we have such a parallel to this now. Walter Brueggemann does it so well, the Old Testament scholar, the consumeristic culture in which we live in, in which um, everybody is kind of becoming homogenized, and we lose these very distinct, for them it would have been Jewish practices, for us these Christian practices, we forget who we are. It's so challenging to remember our identity and to practice these things and do these things that will tell us who we are. Which, And I'd love to talk more about that, but that doesn't quite feel like it is this sermon. The, the point I think that Jeremiah wants to make you guys are going to have to stop living in denial and accept the reality of exile. You don't have to like the reality of exile, and you definitely don't need to fall in love with Babylon. You definitely don't need to fall in love with the empire. Like, that's not the way to go. But you've got to accept the reality of exile. I think sometimes what we do when we are feeling the most displaced we go back to a time in our lives or place in our culture or place in history where from where we lived anyway, the world seems simpler and better. And we think if we could just get back to that place, if we could just get back to the good old days. Some of you have heard me give this riff before. I don't exactly believe in the good old days. 
because what were good old days for some were not good old days for others. And I also know there's just a way, too, that uh, time has a way of causing us to romanticize the past in ways that are not realistic. So that uh, earlier than this period of exile in Israel's history, after God has delivered his people up out of slavery, when life gets really hard, eh, you know, I tell you what, I remember back those good old days when we were making bricks for Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh took pretty, pretty good care of us. We had three meals a day. I slept good in those days. Isn't that, you know, but, but, but it makes sense in a way, right? Because we do that. <laughs> That when things get hard, we romanticize the past in a way to where, even if it wasn't awesome, it sounds really awesome, even if there's going back. Whether you believe in the good old days or you don't, here's the reality. There is no going back. There is no going back. The world's not going back. America's not going back. History's not going back. Time's not going back. Not going to happen. What we have now is this moment. What we have now is this place. What we have now is this city. What we have now is an opportunity to, while keeping our distinctiveness as the people of God, our peculiar songs, our peculiar practices, while keeping all of that intact, gathering, reminding one another of who we are and all that, there is also now this calling to the city. Part of what I think has got to be disorienting about a text like this, and I so feel the Holy Spirit on this, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For the people of God, here's been reality for the last couple hundred years. Well, um, now, I mean, I'm saying here, it's been decades, but The reality for them, day in and day out, has been this. We're in exile. This is awful. God, when are you going to come and save us? They've been preoccupied with their own salvation. When are you going to come and rescue us, God? When are you going to come and make it right? And they mean make things right for us, take care of us. They, They thought that the end game was God's salvation for Israel. Part of what I think is the wake-up call of verse 7 for us is I think there are many of us who are preoccupied with our own salvation, understandably, because the world feels really mad right now, and we care about ourselves, and we care about our immediate family and our people. When are you to come and make things right? But see, apparently what we get here is that God has a, apparently God has a plan for Babylon. Apparently God isn't just concerned with the salvation of Israel. Apparently, for all the things that happen that get the people of God where they are, and by the way, there's a rabbit trail that we'd like to go down. How many, how many hours can we spend trying to figure out how did we get here and whose fault it was? When was the turning point? During what administration? At what point in history? Where did the church go wrong? Where did the world go wrong? Who should we blame? Man, I don't know if anybody can hear me preach right now, but at a certain point, exile is exile. You are where you are. And however you think that you got here, the point is, you're not leaving anytime soon. 
And it's not going to do you that much good to overthink that or retrace your steps. Here becomes the question. Now that we're in this unfamiliar place, in this strange land, now that we're strangers in a strange land, how are we going to live? What are we going to do with the world, not as we think it should be, but the world that we've actually been given? What are we going to do with that? How are we going to live now that we're here? Because this is where we are. And as imperfect as it might be. And how about this? Because to me, this is a strange tension. We know that when we read the prophets, that a lot of the reason it would seem that Israel goes into exile to begin with is because of their own disobedience. It's because of their sin and their rebellion against God that they end up outside, it would seem, of God's protection and care, and they have to live with these consequences. Like, there are plenty of passages that would suggest that exile is punishment in that way. And yet here's what I love about a verse like verse 7, and we get lots of glimpses of this too. Into exile, into the city, into Babylon, where I have sent you, where I've sent you. Maybe you did make some wrong turns along the way. Maybe there are some things that you could have done differently. But the bottom line is, there's also this sense now for the people of God, you have been sent to Babylon. You are not in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're exactly where I want you to be. I have placed you here. I put you here. Oh, my goodness. How much of my life have I spent in very uncomfortable places? And I assume that the discomfort means surely God doesn't want me here. I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. When are you going to deliver me out of this place? Now, if you send a preacher to me in that moment who says, hey, you might want to have some kids. You might just want to go ahead and camp out for... Because you're going to be here for a while. I'm going to want to hit you in the nose. Because like, I don't want to hear that. What I want to hear is, you don't have to work here anymore. You don't have to deal with this relationship anymore. Whatever it is that doesn't feel good, oh no, I'm about to snatch you up out of that. What if instead God says, no, you're exactly where I want you to be. You've been sent. My hand is on you here. <laughs> it might not feel comfortable. You might not feel at home, and maybe you're not supposed to feel at home. But that doesn't mean you haven't been sent. That doesn't mean you don't have a place in the city. Oh, goodness. I'm going back to that verse one more time. Thank you, Crystal. I have to just publicly thank her every once in a while. Keeps me from drowning, absolutely. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare what? <laughs> no, no, no. God, I don't think you understand. I'm not well. We, we are not well. I can't think about somebody else's welfare when I'm not well. That's not responsible. That's not realistic. How can I be concerned about somebody else when we're at such a bad place? This is not a time to think about taking care of anybody else. We need you to take care of us. <laughs> and here God is speaking to the people of God, living in exile for all this time, having been carted away from Jerusalem to Babylon, already in this strange and unfamiliar world, already reality feels like hell. It feels like everything's on fire. It's just, it's just so awful. And now you want to tell me, seek the welfare of the city where I've been sent? You're telling me to care about what happens to Babylon? What happens to me? Now you're telling me to pray for Babylon? 
How about somebody pray for me? You're telling me to take care of these other folk? How about somebody take care of me? I, don't, I, I could use some taking care of here. And yet, isn't this the strangeness of the promise? Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the peace of the city, and there I will give you peace. You tend to the city, and I'll tend to you. You take care of the people you've been sent to, and I'll take... If you will pray and work for God's shalom, God's peace, God's justice in this unfamiliar place, God says, I will give you peace there. I will give you shalom if you'll work for shalom for them. I will save you if you stop being preoccupied with your own salvation. I will deliver you if you get busy doing what I've called you to do to bring my deliverance, my freedom, my hope to somebody else. You take care of the people in the city where you've been sent, and I will take care of you. What a crazy thought, or is to me. Pray, I keep going there. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its, in its welfare, you will find welfare. Oh. Part of what I think I'm brushing up against here is our own sense of, and we are very individualistic people. I, 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 don't, I can't take care of somebody else. What about the city? You're gonna, because, what, what about me? That, that's how we're wired. What does that have to do with me? The idea that somehow we have to take responsibility for people who are not like us. The idea that we're supposed to be consumed with God's heart for the city. Oh my goodness. I just, I, I'm sorry. If you feel like my gears are spinning hard, like what's happening? I mean, so much of this, it's just, this is just exploding in my head right now. And this is what happens. I go all weekend. It's churn, 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 and then like just finally the dynamite goes off in my brain. Did you see this somehow? Because I just still feel like I'm that person who's seeking my own salvation deliverance, constant anxiety about what's going to happen to me. <laughs> and the Lord's saying, Stop worrying about what's going to happen to you. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the peace of the city where you've been sent. I'll take care of you. I'll grant you peace in this place. Part of what this means, and I, I can't not stress this enough, seek the welfare of the city in which you've been sent. Listen to how local that is, how grounded that is. Care for the people in the town that I've placed you in. Now, I... Now, we can talk about exile as a metaphor, and we can talk about Babylon as a metaphor and all that, but I think it's important here for us to make a, a fairly direct translation and not be quite so abstract and floating and metaphor. If, if you live in Tulsa, seek the welfare of Tulsa. Care for the people there. Care for those people that I've sent to you. Oh, man, this is so good. The people of God are sitting there and we're, our deal, what we're wrangling about, is all the big stuff, the big picture. When will God raise Israel back up out of Babylon? That's a storyline that involves kings and armies and people who are living far outside. Where That's a big story that we don't have any control over, none whatsoever. We're preoccupied with that big picture. And here God asks us, Stop, stop worrying about the big picture for a moment and think about where you live. 
Think about the other people that actually live where you do. Are you hearing what I'm saying at all? Let go of that for just a moment. You already feel this coming? The election. What are we going to do? What am I going to do? Well, where do you live? Who are the people you've been called to? What do you, what do you, what do you think you're going to do? What could you do to change any of that? Well, I can vote. Yes, you can vote. Praise God. Vote. That's awesome. But do you hear my heart in this? There's also a real way we do the best we can with what we've been given in every category. To vote, to not vote, however your conscience is leading you in that way. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even getting into all that. Here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, we don't have control over those things. We don't have control as individuals over that big picture. And I think so often, here's some, I hadn't thought about this in so many years. In 2008, in the middle of that electoral man, and it was, we always talk about how intense it is these days, and I think it is intense, but you know, it's been getting intense for a while. And I remember at that point, the church I had founded had only been around for, well, let's see, we started in January of 2006, so we're about two years in. And I'd been doing a teaching series on the Gospel of Matthew. So I'd been preaching for six months on the Gospel of Matthew. And another story for another time, we were being all diligent. Like I had this whole thing where I had people praying and fasting and reading the book of Matthew together. We're on this whole discipleship journey. One of my professors, as a mentor of mine, Dr. Stanley Hauerwas, had just written a commentary on Matthew that came out about the time that we were finishing up that series. So I asked Dr. Hauerwas to come to the church and to do a Q&A that Sunday morning uh, at like the end of the series, which actually first I asked him to preach, and he said, you know, he always writes new sermons and didn't feel like he had time, whatever. And we decided to land on this kind of Q&A. There's a whole funny backstory about that that I'm not going to go into because you have to understand how Ross is this very, he's this very salty figure, and I tried to prepare the church for that, <laughs> but they were not fully prepared for the how Ross that we got. I prepared, you know, sometimes a little bit of language, he used more language than I was anticipating. There were several things that I tried to prepare, but he was going to be provocative. He was a little more provocative than even I was anticipating. I mean, our church was 150, and we lost 35 people over that Sunday. You feel that, friends. So when everybody gets all upset and anxious, but where people can leave, like, yeah, man, I, know, I have carried that kind of weight, so I understand, I understand that kind of anxiety. And there's a the, the, the whole story about that is kind of another story for another time. But there was this one moment that t totally like, I don't know if I ever thought about it after that day until yesterday. I mean, because it was probably the least controversial thing that he said, you know. There were plenty of other, I, mean, I think even what he said wasn't so controversial, but the way that he said it, how he said it, was kind of what chafed some people the wrong way. But we were talking about this whole thing about politics. And the reason that I even brought it up to Hauerwas is because Harawas has this whole riff about the kingdom of God being a radical alternative to the kingdoms of this world. And it's always this emphasis on how, you know, no earthly kingdom or political party or whatever is going to embody the kingdom of God because there's always other. And so I was trying to set all that up. But in the course of all that, we, had been, we, you know, we were talking about 
Uh, we're talking about this whole thing of politics and what does it look like to be faithful? What does it look like to be Christians like during this season? And he said something that I haven't thought about in so many years. He said, because Harold Ross is a big baseball fan, and there's a minor league baseball team there in Durham, he said, you know what, Jonathan, honestly, we've got this referendum coming up on whether or not we're going to build a new baseball stadium, minor league baseball stadium in, in, uh, in Durham. And he said, I'm far more concerned about whether or not we get that new baseball stadium than I am who goes into the Oval Office. <laughs> that was his response. And I look back at that now, and I think, oh my, there's actually a ton of wisdom in that. Because the idea, I think, for him was, okay, in my town, what happens in Durham, that has a far more direct impact on my life and the lives of the people around me than, than who's there. I think there, there's a moral in that somewhere, that like we can't get so lost in the fog of everything happening out there that is beyond our immediate control, that we lose our own sense of context. This is where we live. This is what we've been called to do. Because here's what happens. God sends us as people into exile. The church is the hope of the world. We are the only hope that the world has. I don't mean that in a narcissistic way, but we're the light of the world. If the light goes out, if the salt loses its saltness, we are the light of the world. So if we're so consumed with angst about where it's all going that we lose our brightness and our witness to Tulsa, nobody wins in that scenario. Because what happens with all of that is that we get paralyzed. We get so paralyzed. Again, the point of this is not to say that, it, of course, the world is very connected. And I'm not saying that all of it doesn't matter. Of course it matters but we can only affect so much change. And I just think that everything comes into very different kind of perspective if we come to really believe that we've been sent to this particular place. I keep saying Tulsa, but the particularity of the job that you're working right now, the family that you have right here, right now, the people around you need, what is God calling me to do there with them? What are the needs in our, in our local place? How would God use us to transform the city. I, I had lost all sense of any kind of time or whatever else in the last few minutes. I almost feel, this happens sometimes. I have these twilight zone movements. I, I could believe that like, I've been taken out of here. People bring up things I said on Sunday and I don't remember any of it. I'm like, I, I'm sure I did say that. And I'm like, will you stand by that? I don't know. I don't remember what I said. Um, I'll tell you this though, part of what I, what I do know about like being the people of God in exile and hear this in a way that's not just depressing. It's long, slow work. And I think that's the point in Jeremiah telling everybody, settle down, go ahead and have some kids. You're going to be here for a spell. This is long, slow work. There's not going to be immediate results for everything. And I think that for us right now can be such a liberating word, especially when the world does feel like it's a little bit out of our control or maybe a lot out of our control, because we want to change things, fix things, adjust things, you know, in such a way to where, you know, we, we, we see results and we see change the fact of the matter. If we're faithful to what God is calling us to do, the results of that faithfulness, the fruit of that faithfulness may not be seen for a very long time. And Hebrews in the great hall of faith, when the writer of Hebrews is talking about all these great saints 
that verse I always think about there in Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, having not yet seen the promise. Working for a city, looking for a city that, they, that in this lifetime, in this space, they never inhabited. Their faithfulness, there, there were seeds that were sown in that that weren't going to be brought to fruition until long after they're gone. We have, to be, we have to trust the slow work of God in that way. We have to be all right with the fact that we might be completely faithful to do what God's called us to do. We might be, we might be doing everything that he's asked and do it well. We're faithful, all of that, and still not see tremendous results. Still not, it, it may not be tangible in that way. That's the long game, though is that God wants to transform the city. God wants to transform the world. There, there, there's these broader, bigger narratives that God is in charge of. We are not. We, have, we can only deal with what's been given to us. And if we'll be faithful in those small things in what God has given us here, we can trust him to take care of all that. Might take a long time, though. And just because it's not changing quickly doesn't mean you're not doing your job. Man, I... I just wish that some of you could enter into that kind of freedom and release. Because part of what that liberates us to do, I think, is to not feel like that the weight of the world is on our shoulders in quite the same way. Man, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to change, but I'm just not in a position to change. So I ask, what has God put in my hands to do? And I'm going to do that. That's, that. that's all I can control. That's all I can take care of. I have to trust God to take care of everything else. Stand with me if you would. I want us to pray together. Before we come to the Lord's table. You know, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot these days about the city. And I am a little bit of a stranger in a strange land, so sometimes I can feel out of my depth, you know, because I just I always feel like I'm talking about things that I don't really know what I'm talking about. So, well, what do you mean? I don't know. I mean, but I'm, I'm, walking, I'm walking in the light as it shed for me. But I, do, I really do have this sense that whatever it looks like for what God's going to do in us from here as a community, certainly as individuals as well, but I just, I just feel like there's something to this thing of thinking very, very locally, you know? Not in a way that means we don't care about missions or we don't care about the world. Of course, that's not what I mean. But to think very locally like to be very strategic and intentional about where God is sending us, who he sent us to, what God wants to do right here, right now. So I just invite you, if you just close your eyes with me, and let's just take a moment to just listen to the Holy Spirit. And, and maybe even before we do that, to take, um, God, we, we acknowledge, Lord, that we feel disrupted for some of us, all the time these days, we, don't, we so often feel like we, we don't know what's going on and we don't know what all is happening around us and everything's kind of moving in light speed. And there's so many reasons to be anxious. There's so many reasons it would seem to be afraid. I feel such a tenderness in my heart this morning, Lord. Not, not a judgment, but in the same way the night with Pepper when she's freaking out because she thinks every noise is some kind of a killer clown. I just feel that anxiety from your people right now. And a lot of times when we say and do crazy things, it's for no other reason that we're just really scared. That we, we really don't know what to do with the, uh, 
with everything that's changing. We really don't know what to do with it. We feel like we're upside down all the time. God, I just pray that you would send your comfort now to these exiles, these sons and daughters. God, that the places that we are right now are places that you have sent us. (laughs) Jobs that may not feel ideal, but we've been sent. Family that's misbehaving, but we've been sent. (laughs) A church community that's not as homogenous as we'd like it to be. And we all sit around thinking everybody else around us is so dumb. Why doesn't everybody just see it the way that we do? And we've been sent, Lord, we've been sent. God, I just pray you would give us the grace to see that. And I pray that instead of wallowing in anxiety about things that are not given for us to control or to change, show us what you've put in our hands. Show us what we can do in the world right in front of us. Maybe for just a moment, if you'd lift your hands to the Lord as as a sign of surrender and sacrifice, if that's where you are. God, if there's any way that you can use us here, that's what we want. Like Isaiah, here am I, send me. Show me what you want me to do. Show me where you want me to work. Show me, God, what faithfulness looks like where I live. Teach me how to trust you with the big picture but to be faithful with what you've given me in this place. Teach us, Lord, as a people, how to trust in the slow work of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.